preach that this morning in John chapter 7. Now, we got through 71 verses of John 6. It took six messages. We got through it. And I'm thankful. I love John chapter 6. But if you'll look at John 7, there's three words it starts. It says, after these things. What are, what are those things? Well, that's chapter 6. There's a six-month gap between chapter 6 and chapter 7. And then in chapter 7 and chapter 8, there is, <clears throat> there's only six months until the cross. So literally from John 7 to Calvary, we're looking at six months in the life of Jesus Christ. That's a lot of chapters dealing with a daily account almost of Jesus' life and as He heads to Calvary. So sometimes we look at a book and we think, oh, it's a long time span. Actually, in some of this it's not. And so I want us to pay attention, keep that in mind as we look at these verses together in John chapter 7. Let's read in verse number 1. The Bible says, And after these things Jesus is walking in Galilee, for He was unwilling to walk in Judea, uh, or un, into the jewelry because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of, of tabernacle was at hand. Jewry here, not jewelry. Jewry is a section of Jerusalem or a section of Judea that Jesus knew that these would be there to kill him. These would be there to take his life. They hated him. Now remember in John 6, many of these people, these religious Jews, they walked away when Jesus declared himself the bread of life. Jesus said, hey, if you eat of me, you'll never hunger. If you drink of my blood, metaphorically, if you drink of my blood, you'll never thirst. Meaning that you'll never be satisfied on this world's appetite or with this world's appetite. If you feast on me, then you have feasted on that which is eternal. Well, they hated him for that. They hated him, the fact that he declared himself the son of God, that the fact that he is God, they hated him for that. So they hated the deity of Christ. But look down with me in verse number 2. Now the, Jews, now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. This was a very important time. There was three feasts that these males were required to partake in. The Passover, of course. Then the, the feast of, of the uh, Pentecost, which would be a foreshadowing of Acts chapter 2. And then the feast of the booths, or the feast of tabernacles. Verse number 3. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. For neither did his brethren believe him. This is literally, believe in him, this is literally his half-brothers. Family. Did not even believe. Look at verse number 6. Then Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it, that the works thereof are evil. Go ye up into this feast. I go not up yet into this feast, for mine time is not yet full come. When he said these words unto them, he abode still in Galilee. Look at verse 10. But when his brethren were gone up, again, these are family members, then went he also up into the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? You know, they, again, they're wanting to kill Jesus. 
And there is much murmuring among the people concerning him. For some said, he is a good man. So some there no doubt thought, well, this is a good man. He's doing good things. Others said, nay, but he deceiveth the people. Howbeit no man spake openly of him for fear of the Jews. There's a lot going on right now. Feast of the Tabernacles has taken place. This is a busy time. And Jesus is stuck in this time for fear of His life. You say, well, that doesn't really make sense because, you know, Jesus came to die. He came to, yes, He came to die, but not the way they wanted to. Jesus came to willingly lay His life down on the cross, right? He, didn't, he was not murdered. He was not captured. He was not held hostage. Jesus was willingly laying His life down for us at Calvary, shedding His blood, right? John chapter 7 and John chapter 8 relate some incidents at the Feast of the Booth, uh, of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles at, in Jerusalem that show mounting opposition toward Jesus. I mean, people hated Him. It would be about six months after this feast that Jesus then would be crucified. And in verse 1 we see, after these things, reflects a gap of about six months, as I said earlier, that took place really near the Passover. If you find that in John 6 and look at verse 4, the Passover time is close as well. So about six months from that time till about now is what's taken place. And there was three great Jewish feasts in Jerusalem every male expected to go. And I said Pentecost, the booths, and uh, the Passover, of course. The Passover pictures the Lord's death on the cross for our sins as our Passover lamb. The Pentecost foreshadowed the outpouring of the Spirit of God in Acts chapter 2. And the Booths pictures Christ coming again and to joyously gather the harvest of His people and dwell permanently with them forever. A man by the name of Colin Cruz explains the Feast of Booths and he says this, The feast had double purpose. The reason they celebrated the Feast of Booths is to remember Israel's time in the wilderness when they lived in booths as they journeyed and also to rejoice before the Lord after a harvest. Whether it be grapes, whether it be olives, whether it be fruit harvest, whatever, they would take time to, they would take time to celebrate and also reenact some of this booths festival. He adds that it, it is the most joyful of the three pilgrim fest, a feast, because they, there's celebration and there's, there's reenactment. In Jesus' time, it included pouring out water in remembrance of the water from the rock that sustained Israel in the wilderness. And then they would light candles and it would be a, a memorial as, as uh, the cloud that followed uh, Israel through the wilderness and it was a cloud by day and a fire by night. And so they would do this during Jesus' time. By the way, that's why Jesus said in John chapter 8, that He's the light of the world. And often in, in I believe, John uh, 6 and John 5 and in John 4, he, he refers to Himself as the water of life. He used these analogies, the bread of life, after He fed the 5,000. But really, the, the theme that I want, the angle that I want to come at this morning, the application in our text is this, in John 7 and 8, is really set right here in John 7, verses 1 through 13. The whole stage is set for these next two chapters. In these 13 verses. 
I would like to look at the methodology of Jesus Christ today. In these 13 verses, I want to take the way Jesus reacted to those that hated Him, to those that questioned Him, and the, to those that tried to manipulate Him. I want to bring that out today because I believe God has a message for us today in this present hour. Matter of fact, I know He does. It's been confirmed. I want you to see the purpose in which Jesus was effective. How do you define effectiveness? Effectiveness is defined by your goals. If you have goals, then it is possible or impossible. If you have no goals, it's impossible to measure your effectiveness. For instance, if if you're out to uh, gain material wealth, if that's your goal, to be materially uh, rich or have material wealth, then your effectiveness will be determined by your buying power. It's like the bumper sticker that says, uh, he who has the most toys wins, right? You judge a man by the big bass boat and by the big truck and by the nice house and, and all the little gadgets and gizmos that he has. If that's your goal, then you're judged by what toys you have. If your goal is to win friends and influence people, then your effectiveness will be determined by how many friends you win or how many likes you have on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or whatever social media outlet that you want to influence people. In order to measure effectiveness of Jesus... You have to measure it by His stated goal. What was the goal that Jesus had while here on this earth? Well, I believe it's actually stated by Him in John chapter 4. Will you turn over there with me? John chapter 4 and verse number 34. Jesus actually says the reason, the goal, the desire that He had. He says it right here in John 4, 34. Jesus saith unto them, My meat, not literal meat that we would eat at a restaurant or meat that we would have. It's not always talking about my desire, my goal. My goal is to do the will of Him that sent me and to finish His work. The goal of Jesus Christ was to do and please His heavenly Father. By the way, that should be ours. That should be our goal. That should be what we desire. And given the fact that in a hundred years from now, we will all be pushing up daisies, right? We'll all be dead in a hundred years. What we do here, what we live for, what we wear, what we drive, what we live in, all these things really won't matter. You ever seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul? At a, at a funeral procession? No. You, you can't take anything with you. Now, you maybe say, Preacher, I, I've seen that before. That would be interesting. I'd like to see that. I'm sure somebody's tried it. But you're not taking any of it with you. In eternity, everything you've gained will be lost, and everything you've lost will be gained. And God is the ultimate reality. Our goal should be to do what God tells us to do. If God is dealing with your heart 
and, and God is dealing with my heart this morning and God says something in His Word today or God tells you something in your quiet time or in your uh, devotion or in your relational walk with the Lord, can I say this? You better do it. If God is speaking to your heart, you better do it. Hey, if He's telling you to go and, 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 and surrender or whatever, hey, you better do it. Hey, because you can run, but you'll not be happy. If the goal is to please the Father, then please Him. Let me give you some ways that our, our Jesus was effective. Now, I want you to listen. Because if you miss one point, you may miss the good, juicy one. And they're all juicy. They're good. Let me just go back to verse number 1. John chapter 7 and verse number 1, the Bible says this, After these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for He would not walk in Jewry, because the Jews sought to kill Him. The first thing I want us to, to understand about our text is this, Jesus was effective because He was practical. The reason that Jesus would not walk in dangerous enemy territory is because they might kill Him. Well, that's real deep, isn't it? That's deep. The reason he wouldn't go on that side of town is because it was dangerous. Now, you may be out there saying, well, well, well if we were there, we, we might say to Jesus, aren't, aren't you committed enough or don't you love God enough to put it on the line and, and to go publicly in, in Jerusalem where that crowd you know hates you? Don't you know that the Lord will protect you? I mean, we maybe have thought those things before, but... I want you to remember something. Earlier in John, Jesus actually had spent six months in Galilee because His life was threatened. Jesus was in the witness protection program. He, he was literally uh, uh, Israel's most wanted. And the decision was a practical decision and it was made in the face of practical circumstances in order to accomplish a practical end. Jesus came, the cross in mind. He did not want to be drugged through an alleyway. He did not want to be stoned to death on the side. He wanted to willingly lay his life down. And if he would have showed himself in public, yes, he could have made miracles. Yes, he could have called 10,000 angels. But Jesus was also practical in his dealings with humanity. As an example to us. There's a lesson here. There's a difference between commitment. Listen to this, boy, it's deep. And stupidity. You know what will make you and mothers, if you look at your, if you look at your, uh, if you look at your kids and, and you say, uh, "Don't say stupid." You know, I get it, but sin makes you stupid. Can I, can I get an amen? Sin will make you silly. Sin will cause you to be stupid. So, listen, when something is practical, when something is, when something is uh, in our face that tells us danger is ahead, and you say, oh yeah, but I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna walk right into that like I own the place. Hey, be careful. God, warning signs blinking everywhere and somebody trying to help you and you're trying to be, oh yeah, but I'm committed to the cause. Well, hold on a second. There's a fine line between commitment and stupidity. Billy Sunday said this. I didn't say it. Billy Sunday said it. A sinner can repent a thousand times. 
but stupid is forever. <laughs> don't, don't get mad at me. He said it. And he's been in heaven a long time. There is a difference between commitment and foolishness. How about saying that? There is a difference between commitment and foolishness. Jesus was being practical in verse number 1. I had a friend one time who was called to preach. He was very zealous. Man, he was so zealous. And I love zeal, by the way. I think we should have it and pray for boldness and zeal. But zeal without knowledge is dangerous. You understand? Zeal without knowledge is dangerous. And he's a good friend and a great pastor today. But... He wanted to, he was on this thing where if a preacher preaches with notes and a manuscript, it's not from God. He said, man, you're writing down your words. But what he don't understand is what God has given to me, I have to write down or I'll forget them. Uh, he didn't, he didn't understand that part of the, 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 the you know, the homiletics and all that. So he, he, he just said, I'm going to get up. Here's what he said. It was, uh, it was, we were in college, and he said, I'm just going to get up, and I'm going to preach what the Spirit gives me. <clears throat> and he did. And it was for like three or four minutes, and it didn't make a lick of sense. And he, he got in the middle of it, realized that he had lost his way, and he sat down. And all the other guys, because you're preaching to your peers, so it's even worse. And then the college professor's over here and he's shaking his head because he knew that he did not prepare. And, and part of it might have been, I don't know, I don't know. But, but part of it, it, I believe it trained him to understand the practical side of homiletics is study, yes, preach, yes, but have something written down. Because there are times where you lose your way. Somebody falls down in the middle of the aisle. Seriously. They get up and they trip and they fall, or a baby may be misbehaving, you know, crying, whatever. It could be my baby, whatever. I'll lose. It probably is by the end of the service. He's doing good now. Uh, or somebody's talking. You're wondering what they're talking about. Somebody's checking their emails. Happens all the time. Something happens, and so for just a split second, I lose all train of thought. And you know what I do? I look down and hopefully get it right. And act at least like I know what I'm talking about. There was a practical side. Jesus left us an example of practicality. And we, as Christians, ought to follow the example that Jesus leaves for us. Hey, listen. Don't put yourself in a bad situation because you say you're committed. Let's, let's see the warning signs. Let's be practical about it. Jesus was effective because He was practical. Number two, Jesus was effective because He knew the importance of time. Look with me in John chapter 7 and verse 6. The Bible says this, Then said Jesus unto them, My time is not yet come, for your time is always ready. Now, in a number of other places in John, John chapter 2, verse 4, John chapter 7, verse 30, John chapter 8, verse 20, John chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. In each of these instances, Jesus was actually referring to a Greek word that indicates an appointment or a destination. But here, the only other time in John 7, in verse 6, He uses another Greek word, which is the word karyos, which means 
what you ordinarily mean when you use the word time. Like, what time is it? I have a clock back here, a big one, that I can see visibly what time it is. Don't I shouldn't have told you where it's at, because there are many of you. And uh, uh, But I have a time. I know what time that I about, I start, you know, rounding the runway or rounding the circle, getting home to the arrival. I know about what time I start kind of getting things ready to end the plane or end the lesson or end the sermon. And so I'm watching the time. If you look at me and you say, Pastor, what time is it? That's exactly the way that Jesus is using chapter number 7 and verse number 6. Basically what Jesus is saying is, I don't have time. Look at it. Then Jesus said to them, my time is not yet come. Or that this is not the time that I'm doing this. I don't have time. The time, it tells us that Jesus was sensitive to the time that is passing. Let me just say this. If you're not aware, time is no respecter of persons. Let me say this. Time is a gift from God. Jesus was sensitive of the time and the hour in which it was my, my kids are growing up and I'm sensitive of the time that I have with them under my roof. I'm sensitive of the time that I have with my children. Some of you parents that are dropping off children this week, you're sensitive of the time. It's been in your face. It's been a reality check. And maybe it's your first child that you're dropping off. Maybe it's your last. Maybe you go celebrate. I'm not sure. But I know this. It's really not an easy thing for a child, for a parent to drop off a child Because you're realizing that time is racing by. Jesus said, I don't have time. Here's the principle. The principle of this text is, this verse is time will be important to you in a direct proportion to how important God is to you. What you do with time. Jesus says, I have to be careful with my time. He's speaking to his unbelieving brothers. He says, you have to be careful at all with your time because your time doesn't mean the same to you as it does to me. It's exactly what he says in verse, but your time is always ready. Henry Thoreau said this, you cannot kill time without injuring eternity. And I think that Thoreau was more correct that he realized because he was, uh, he, because what we do in Time counts for eternity. Now you may be out there thinking, does this mean that, that you're killing time when you're playing with your children or, or when you take an outing with your kids? No, because God actually teaches us that we should put our ministry into our family and our time and effort. Listen, an absent father or an absent mother or an absent uh, parents is the reason we have such a dysfunctional culture today. Husbands. Does this mean that you're killing time or wasting time when you're taking out your wife to dinner or going on a date with her or a little getaway with her? You're just wasting time? Absolutely not. Your wife is your number one priority. It's an investment. Does that mean that you're being wasteful when you spend a day doing nothing? Just resting? No, because there's times when God calls us to rest. There's times when God calls us just to wait on Him. 
Now, we should not waste time. We, we know that. We should not waste time. Uh, on the other hand, if you just sit around doing nothing for God and He's called you to a certain activity or a certain mission field and you don't do nothing about it, then you're wasting time. You're not redeeming the time. So, Jesus was effective. I'm getting somewhere, by the way. Y'all are doing great. Jesus was effective because He knew the importance of time. Here's the third thing. Jesus was effective... Because he knew the importance of timing. Now let's not mix the two. Look with me in verse number 8 of John 7. Go ye up unto this feast. I go not up yet unto this feast for my time. Here it is again. For my time is not yet full come. Sometimes, listen to this. Sometimes we are inclined to do the right thing, but at the wrong time. There's a right time to give instruction. There's a right time to give exhortation and teaching. But there's also a wrong time. Y'all remember the story of Job? Job lost his children. Job lost a stock market crash. Job lost all of his earnings. He lost everything. Great wind came through and just tore up everything. His wife, basically, uh, she didn't turn her back on him. She was hurt by everything. But, but, but Job was in a relational issue right there as well. And then, to top it all off, he gets a disease, boils comes up on his skin, and he's in pain. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, three friends show up. Y'all remember the friends? And they stand by Job or sit by Job that, that them evenings and them days for one week and never said a word. How weird is that? Never said a word. Silence. When they finally spoke up, they gave Job the right advice, but at the wrong time. And at the end of Job, the Lord wants to actually chastise them for that. And guess what? It's the prayers and the intercession of Job that actually saved them. Let me just say this. Look at me, church. Just because you're right does not mean that you should say it. Yeah, but I feel like I just didn't. I just got to say whatever. Here's what, I am, here's what I am tired of. I'm tired of people using the excuse, well, I just don't have a filter. Whatever comes to my mind, I'm just going to say it. You need rebuke. You need to grow up. And, and you need to understand that just because you may think you have to say it. I know it's a strong word. I know it is. But I'm going to say it. Because it's, I'm, I'm telling you right now, timing is everything. And what people are lacking today, listen to me church, what people are lacking today is discernment. Oh, but preacher, I just feel like I need to go up there and say something to them. They're just hurting so bad. Is what you're going to say make it better? Because most of the time when you put your arm around someone and you say something, it usually, listen, if the timing's not right, it backfires. Oh, listen, we need to understand that Jesus was effective because He knew the importance of timing. There's a lot of lessons that we can even learn from the book of Job. But one of them is that we need to ask the Lord to make us sensitive to His timing. 
Here's the fourth thing that I got from our text. Jesus was effective because he could not be manipulated. Look with me in verse number 3 and 4. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence. Now this is his brethren. This is his own flesh and blood. We know it's his half-brothers. Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus was overshadowed by... Mary was overshadowed by the Spirit of God. And so Jesus does not have an earthly father. But these are, these are his brethren, half-brothers. They said unto him, To depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see thy works that thou doest. Look at verse 4. For there is no man that doest anything in secret... And he himself seeketh no uh, to be known openly. And if thou do these things, show thyself to the world. So these half-brothers of Jesus, now listen to this, they gave what sounded Jesus some very pious advice. I mean, honestly, in reading, I've read this before, and I've, I've honestly never really studied this out, but it sounds very spiritual. Hey, go to Jerusalem and show yourself. I mean, Jesus, come on. What you have should be revealed to the world. I mean, you don't need to be a secret. You need to to be out there in front of everybody. And these brothers of Jesus gave what sounded like good advice, spiritual advice, in order to try to manipulate the actions of, of Jesus. Now let me just make a statement or two. And I want you to listen. There are people who would use religious means to try to manipulate you into jumping into their command. There are people that attend churches that a preacher will get up and use the podium or the platform in which he has to manipulate, to convince the people out here to do something that God has not told them to do. It sounds good. It sounds good. Let me tell you something. Your red flags, that Spirit of God that gives you that... He's, he's in you. If He is indwelling you, you, you're saved. He indwells you. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit of God and He's in you. And when those radars start flashing and buzzing and flags are popping because you hear somebody in spiritual authority teach you, try to convince you, try to manipulate you, you should run. Can I get an amen? amen. Get out. I ain't of God. A man using his authority to manipulate people. It happens all the time. I'm sick of it. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of hearing it. I'm tired of sitting under it. I'm tired of being manipulated because God... And by the way, just because they say God's in it does not mean that God is in it. Matter of fact, that's blaspheme. That's blaspheme. It's not right. You're visiting this morning, you're like, good grief. Well, this is John 7. Buckle up. This is it. Don't be manipulated. Let me, let me just say another statement. And by the way, I, I, if I was a parent of a, a college student and this is the kind of preaching they said under when they're away from me, I'd be pretty happy. 
That's not a pride-filled statement, but you don't have to worry about me trying to appease your, just because you're here. Amen. Amen. Not, 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 it, it, this is not to impress, and this is certainly not to deflect. Here, here, let me just say this. The next time that someone asks you to do something that you don't believe that you should do, and by the way, even if it's a good thing, won't you do something, all right? Won't you just learn to say no? You say, Pastor, what if you come to me and ask me, you can tell me no if God didn't tell you? I've asked people before to be teachers and leaders and group leaders, and I say, hey man, I believe God would use you. You've got... And they would just say, Pastor, you know, I'm not... I don't know why. They don't have to go into detail why. But here's what they'll say. I just, not, not right now. No, I don't, I don't think. I'll pray about it. And that's a good, good. But when you come back and you don't have that peace and you don't have that confirmation, then listen, it's not going to hurt my feelings because here's the last thing that I would want to do. The last thing I'd want to do is put the wrong person in a place where they shouldn't be. And, and I'll be really honest, that's not always the pastor's fault. You're part of that too. Learn to say no. Oh, man, I want to stay there. But it does get better. Here's the fifth thing. Jesus was effective. Listen to this. Jesus was effective because He did not manipulate others. Now, He was never manipulated. Do you see the manipulation going on in verse 3 and 4? His brother said, Oh, why don't you just go show yourself in Jerusalem and Jesus said, It'll be okay. We don't need to hide you. You need to be out in the open. Well, he would have got killed. So here's what he did. Look with me in verse number 6 and 7. Then Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. Notice this, verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it. The works thereof, that the works thereof are evil. Jesus said, I, I, you don't understand. You've got the time. You, you've got the, your desires are not like my desires. My desire is to please the Father. I'm not here. The world hates me for what I stand for. The rest of Jesus' ministry, Brother Linwood, is where people hated Him. Oh, they loved Him when He first came out of the gate. They loved Him in John chapter 2. But until He healed that man by that pool, y'all know John chapter 5? They hated Him for He said He was the Son of God. And that He was God. And they hated this man named Jesus. Jesus says in John 7, Hey, the world cannot hate you, but it hated me. So sometimes we Christians, we, we get a bit carried away in our desire. Listen to this. We get a bit carried away in our desire when, we are leading, when we're leading people to Christ. Move that. Good grief. Yep, that's the end of that. Amen. Help me, Lord. We Christians sometimes get a bit carried. By the way, you visitors, live stream, I'm sorry. I've got a, we've got stuff down here and I kicked it real hard. and I don't know if I broke it or not. I didn't mean to do that. It's too expensive to do that. Y'all put it right where I step. Practical, Dave. <laughs> 
practical, <laughs> smart. We Christians sometimes get a bit carried away when we desire to win people to Christ. Now listen, I love to win people to Christ. I, I love to preach the gospel to people. But we've got to be careful not to deceive people into thinking that Jesus is going to fix all of their problems. Let's not sugarcoat it. There's a cross to carry. There's burdens to, to bear. Hey, you can, you can go ahead and tell me right now, listen to this. You can tell me right now that a lot of your days has been harder and more difficult after you've been saved. That doesn't mean that you're, you regret ever getting saved. Oh, thank God, because one day those burdens will be at the feet of Jesus and, and there'll be no more death, no more sorrow, no more pain, and there'll be no more sin. I'm thankful for that, but until that day, there is a cross to bear. Let me tell you something. The reason why I, I want to be very, very clear. The reason why there's not fruit in a lot of people's lives is because they came to Jesus... On terms. On terms. On their terms. Well, I want to, you know, as long as Jesus provides and as long as I've got food in my refrigerator and as long as i got shoes on my feet, as long as i got a roof over my head, then, boy, I'm going to serve Him and God's good. Let me just remind you, God's good all the time. Let me just say this. Jesus did not manipulate other people. If you want to see a strong message, listen. If you want to see a strong message preached, go find the messages that Jesus preached. <laughs> he said, you can deny your family, deny your lifestyle, take up your cross, and follow me. Your love for Jesus is what he was basically saying. Is it ought to look like hatred to the world, to your family. You love me so much and you follow me so much and you've denied other things that to the world it looks like you don't care. We cannot manipulate folks into heaven. That's a choice you make, by the way, church. You make the choice to come to Christ. Last night I was I was uh, I preached a men's meeting in North Carolina, a big outdoors thing. It was incredible, uh, just incredible. A whole church full of men singing praises. There were six men that came to Christ last night. Uh, just amazing. Well, I was on my way home. I needed to stop get some coffee. I, I needed some gas there. We, I, I believe I was like in Huntersville somewhere in, off seventy seven. I stopped in a gas station. And the gas pump wasn't working. So I, you know, I tried to, you know, pay and all that. It wasn't working. It said, see cashier. How many of you know what I'm talking about? See cashier. And I'm like, oh, I don't have time for this mess. I'm trying to get home. It's late. See cashier. So I walk in. Guy behind the desk. Uh, can I help you? And I said, just put 40 or $50 on. I can't remember what. It, and he said, okay. So he did that. Walked back out there. It's still saying see cashier. I'm starting to get in the flesh a little bit. So... He sees me out there, and I'm, I'm looking, and finally he walks out to the gas pump. He's like, is this still misbehaving? I said, yeah. So he goes back in, does some things that finally starts to work. He comes back out, and he says, sir, I'm sorry. I said, oh, man, no, no big deal. No big deal at all. So he started emptying some trash cans and, and did different things there. And he said, boy, I like, you. I like your Jeep truck. I like them Jeep trucks. Them are nice. I said, yeah, I, I love it. He started talking about Jeeps. Spirit of God said, give me a track. So I reach inside the little thing. 
And uh, there's cars. It's busy, busy. Uh, Saturday night, Huntersville. It's a, a booming place right outside of Charlotte. I gave him a gospel track, and I said, man, I wrote something several years ago about a Jeep, my Jeep. And I said, on the left side of it, it's facts about Jeeps. And I said, but there's a place that Jeeps will not take you. It'll take you a lot of places. It won't take you to this place. He said, what's that? I said, heaven. He said, oh, that's, that's good. <laughs> he said, yeah, it won't take you to heaven. Jeeps can take you a long place. And, he's, and I said, but you have time for me to show you a few verses in the Bible. So right there, about 10 minutes, I preached the gospel to him. Now, I'm not sure because there was a bunch of people around, a bunch of people coming out of the store. He was the one man in the... I don't know if they were looting. I don't know if they were stealing. He stood right there. And I was expecting him at any time to say, you know, I got to go. You know, never did. Let me just say, right there, he believed the gospel. Bowed his head, asked Jesus Christ to save his soul. After uh, I said, where do you live? And he said, he'd never been to church. He didn't even know who the Apostle Paul was. Never heard. I mean, this, this kid, Howard, I mean, 26 years old, didn't know nothing about church. All he thought was, I'm going to heaven because I, I'm, I'm trying to be good. Is what he said. He said, I'm trying. He was a good kid. Just not good enough. Because there's none good. Howard bowed his head and trusted Christ. I got him in contact with another brother who's going to try to get him in a church up there in Huntersville. Let me just say this. I didn't tell Howard, Howard, boy, things right now, I don't know about your life, but buddy, they're they're about to change, buddy. You are about to just get everything you want, everything easy, and buddy, all the stuff you've been dealing with, it's just going to go away. No, 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 no. That's not the gospel. The gospel is the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's It's a life of suffering. Jesus did not manipulate people to come to the kingdom, to to come to Him, to believe in Him. He gave them the truth. And here's the last thing, and I'm through. Jesus was effective because He was not naive about His effectiveness. Now read that again. Jesus was effective because He was not naive about His effectiveness. Look at verse 7. The world cannot hate you. Notice this. But me it hateth, because I testify of it, that the works thereof are evil. Now let me just say what Jesus is saying. Jesus did not expect everyone to love Him. Why? Because He, in verse 7, testified of it, that the works thereof are evil. And let me just say this, church, hatred is the price you pay for truth. In this day and hour that you live, if you stand for truth, you can guarantee there's going to be hatred. Now, if you're in it for everybody to like you, you're going to have to compromise. You're going to have to beat around the bush. You're going to have to skirt some issues. But if you stand for truth, and by the way, we ought to preach truth in love. You are going to be hated no matter if you smile the whole time and you never lift a voice or never fluctuate your voice or tone. All people are still going to despise you for who you stand with and what you say. Let me just say though, if you go with the crowd, you're not going to be effective. Religion says that everyone is good and that God is a nice fellow who accepts everyone. But Christianity says that everyone is bad 
Religion says it doesn't matter that you or what you believe as long as you're sincere in your faith. But Christianity says the object of your faith is crucial to your eternal destiny. Religion says don't make waves. God says that's why I'm leaving you around to make waves. Religion says that morality is relative to its culture, but Christianity says that God has given us commandments and they aren't merely ten suggestions. They don't change. Jesus knew the truth. And it made Him, listen to this, Jesus was a success. See, I'm not down here to uh, impress you. I'm not down here to impress my other pastor friends. I'm not down here to impress a social media audience. I'm not to impress people that watch on live stream. There's one person in whom we should be pleased and whom should be pleased with us, and that's God. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And if we're going to be successful, we must be effective in our stand for Christ. If you're lost here today, you've not got to first base yet. You need to trust Jesus Christ as Savior. Realize you're a sinner. Realize that you're in need of this Jesus that I'm preaching. This Jesus that loves you. This Jesus that will stick with you as close as a brother. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. And listen, we need Him today. You need Him today.